welcome to Living Well into the Future. I'm your host, Julie B. Adler. This series brings men and women ranging in age from their teens through their 90s to discuss food, housing, climate, and health. Our guests are problem solvers, solution makers. Learn what their contributions and experiences were and are, their challenges and their successes. Our goal is to spark your discussions among and between generations to inspire action toward a healthy and secure future for all. Throughout the series, we've discussed good design, housing and climate, sustainable and resilient housing, housing options, affordable housing, and homelessness. In this episode, we will bring most of the topics in the previous episodes together as we speak with Heather Holdridge, an engineer with Lake Flato Architects, and two architects, Louis McNeil, who led the Lake Flato team that designed House Zero in Austin, Texas, Icon Construction's 3D printed home and architect Stephen Colley, a founder of the Earthen Construction Initiative. Through them, we'll discover and rediscover exciting and innovative tools and methods that could be added to our arsenal of solutions to build sustainable, climate-resilient, healthy, beautiful, and affordable homes in the future. To do that, we'll start with Heather Holdridge. Welcome, Heather, to Living Well into the Future. So you are the only engineer at Lake Flato Architects. When I joined Lake Flato in 2008, my job title was Sustainability Coordinator. Because the firm has grown, it allowed my team to grow as well. So now we call ourselves the Design Performance Team. We've transitioned from using the term sustainability to the term design performance because we feel like it acknowledges the broad spectrum of activities that we're working on. It's everything from sustainable design to design technology and how all of that integrates with innovation, research, building science. One of the things that offer innovative solutions for design and performance is biomimicry. It's a fascinating concept. I've heard you say that you like elements that are elegant and efficient. Does biomimicry fit the bill? Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> sounds like something I would say. <laughs> I think biomimicry is an interesting topic. We get a lot of questions about it in the sustainable design world because you know, to be honest, I think a lot of people get it confused or conflate it with the concept of biophilia. They sound similar. Both concepts are used in sustainable design and they both refer to nature. However, they define different concepts with different aims. So understanding how they differ and what issues they address is key to unlocking the breadth of solutions that nature has to offer from sustainable, innovative designs to improved human health and well-being. So to defining biomimicry, it is the mimicry or more accurately, the emulation of life's engineering. While biophilia describes humans' innate and biological need to connect with nature, and biophilic design is replicating experiences of nature and design to make that connection. So biomimicry is an innovation method to achieve better performance. And biophilic design is an evidence-based design method to improve health and well-being. Biomimicry is more heavily used in technology and product development, but biophilia applies a little bit more directly to architecture and interior design and urban design. Mm -hmm. 
Later in this program, we'll speak with your colleague, Lewis McNeil, about how the 3D printed house Zero uses biophilia in the design. But right now, I'd like to explore how biomimicry is being used. You can find pictures of buildings around the world that seem to use biomimicry, including one that emulates termite mounds. Is that biophilia or biomimicry? Yeah, it's a great question. You're right. That is a very popular example of biomimicry in architecture is drawing inspiration from termite mounds and how they provide natural ventilation and then applying that building design. That's more an example of biomimicry because it's looking to nature as a source for ideas on how to solve a specific design challenge. Biophilia would be more about taking the pattern, the shapes and the sounds, smells, other senses that connect us to nature and incorporating that into architectural design. You've worked on a number of projects that involved mimicry or studying mimicry. Could you tell us about some of those? Yes. One was for the Dallas Zoo. We rarely have clients ask us to incorporate biomimicry into their projects, but this was a rare example of a client requesting that biomimicry be used. And as you can imagine, the Dallas Zoo is full of genius and therefore full of great ideas. And they were positioned better than any client to help us rediscover nature's endless variety of forms, processes, and systems to help us solve our own design challenges. So on that project, which has not been built, by the way, it's still in design, we hope that one day we can take it off the shelf and get it built. But we did utilize seven different biomimicry solutions in the design, but I'll just talk about two examples for the sake of time. The first was that the program for the buildings that we were working on included an educational classroom with an expansive outdoor porch. And we wanted to create a visually compelling outdoor porch that incorporated salvage materials. So we looked to nature for ideas. And in in that search, we found the bowerbird. Male bowerbirds reuse materials from the environment to create visual displays that attract a mate. And as an alternative to bright plumage, where they do not have the ability to control the size or shape of their plumage, bowerbird nests are spectacular displays of natural and synthetic materials arranged with painstaking care. And when we were looking at the outdoor porch of the classroom, we decided to draw inspiration from that and use brush and lumber cleared from the site and adaptively purpose it to form the walls and the roof of the porch. And in doing so, it serves as both material reuse for public art, but also functionally shades the porch so it can maintain comfort during the hot summer months when many summer camps and youth programs take place there. And it's also aesthetically complex, creating a really memorable experience for all of the users. Can you describe what that would look like? So we were clearing brush and lumber from the site. So really materials that would have gone to the landfill otherwise. And we repurposed them to form the walls and the roof of that porch. We did allow them to keep their natural color. We didn't incorporate any new colors into it. But as you can imagine, since it was just cleared from the site, there is a lot of variety in hues because of that, which um, is very much in keeping with how bowerbirds would build their structures. Fascinating. And your next example. Sure. As I just alluded to, cooling is a real need 
at the Dallas Zoo as the climate there has many cooling degree days. We were seeking a passive cooling solution so that zoo visitors could be comfortable in the outdoor and semi-outdoor environment and also to save energy that's associated with active mechanical cooling by systems. So when we were studying nature's solutions to passive cooling, we found the kangaroo. Red kangaroos utilize various forms of evaporative cooling to lower their body temperatures, including licking, panting, and sweating. And during high temperatures, kangaroos lick their forelegs to promote evaporative cooling. So that form of cooling is actually active versus the passive cooling that occurs through sweating and water loss. And they have a superficial anastomosing network of blood vessels that are located in their forelegs and that facilitates that evaporative cooling. So our version of that was to use misters for the evaporative component and then integrate those with a vegetated wall of vines to act as the blood vessel network that allows that vapor to travel to the second story of the structures, cooling all spaces in the buildings. That is an elegant and efficient solution. Yeah, I think that's what, when you draw inspiration from nature, those are the types of solutions that you'll get. Nature tends to be efficient and elegant with their solutions. So we like to apply those same types of solutions to our built designs. For those of you who, like me, want to understand what anastomosing means and how this works, Heather refers us to website asknature.org, which has more information about this and other strategies of nature and innovative solutions arising out of their study. One of the questions that occurred to me as you were talking was, which comes first, the study of nature or the design issue looking for a solution? It's a great question. So we actually went through a pretty formal process. I want to say this was eight years ago. There is a group called the Biomimicry Guild. If you want to become a biomimicry expert or consultant, you can go to that group. You can even formally join that group. And they have a well-defined process on studying principles of biology, ecology, et cetera, and then helping design teams to incorporate biomimicry into our work. So I would have said that um, going through that process with hiring a biomimicry consultant to join our design team and having a two-day intensive workshop where we studied the principles of biomimicry, what they really showed us was that you don't want to come with the issue and just try to solve the problem. It should really be much more expansive than that. At the urging of our biomimicry consultant, she got us out of our comfort zone and had us spend a half day just studying different examples in that ecoregion of different animals and plants and how they function, and then tried to derive inspiration from that to apply it to the built project. So that was definitely a stretch for our design team because I think what we're always trying to do is, gosh, we're trying to solve this issue of how do we reduce air conditioning and let's go out and look at nature and see who does that best so that we can adopt that. But it should really be a much more expansive exploratory process than what we were employing previously. And the eight years, how have you employed this and what situations? I think that the real value here is that biomimicry 
recognizes the innovative potential of life's tested and true technologies. So they demonstrate the wide range of diversity of inspiration that we can derive from nature. So I think that consultant did a really good job of leaving us with a lot of different resources of all the different examples that we had discussed. And like I said, it's an expansive project, but then it edits down to really like the top issues that we want to solve. But the good news is that all of the things that got edited out (laughs) that weren't selected, we still did that homework. We still studied it. So we find ourselves quite frequently going back to those examples and saying, this is the right project to use this example on. I think probably the examples that we use most frequently are the ones about passive design. How can we design buildings to be less reliant on mechanical air conditioning and heating and electric lighting? How can we be more reliant on natural ventilation and using internal loads to heat and using daylighting where we can. So probably the examples that we use most frequently are about animal skin and how they cool themselves. So there was one that we were looking at, it was a desert jackrabbit and their ears and how they, number one, they have very large ears because there's a lot of surface area for them to radiate heat from, but then they are also changing the shape and folding of their ears whenever climate conditions change. So I think that's an example that we use pretty recently on a building skin to think about how could it be a dynamic facade that could passively change when climate conditions change so that we're not having to rely so much on mechanical systems for heating and cooling. Switching from design to the materials incorporated into the construction, when your team works on a concept and the products for a project, have you found that there are now materials using biomimetic uh, solutions that are available to you and that you choose to incorporate in the projects? Yeah, I think that we're starting to see a lot more materials or building products, rather, that are derived from nature. One of the most popular examples of a biomimetic material is Blue Planet's carbon-positive cement and other building materials. Blue Planet's technology mimics coral's ability to use dissolved CO2 in ocean water to build their hard calcium carbonate skeletons, a process that's called biomineralization. And Blue Planet's process starts by extracting CO2 from flue glass, which is the stream that's emitted from coal plants and other combustion sources and combines it with a source of calcium to create cement, aggregate, pigments, and roofing tiles. So this low-energy chemical process sequesters carbon in a durable form rather than releasing it into the atmosphere as a greenhouse gas. So by emulating how natural organisms use CO2 as a resource, Blue Planet has created a unique carbon capture solution. That sounds brilliant. It solves a number of problems in one cell swoop. Have you actually seen it used in projects Is it, or is it available in certain areas? My understanding is that it's available across the country right now. I think there's been very few applications of built projects that have actually used it, but we've been studying it in a few reset projects that we have right now that are in design. So we're hopeful that we'll use either that specific product or something that's similar in the near future. You had previously mentioned mushroom insulation, and I read about muscle shell adhesives and plywood. Are those real things? They're really being used? 
Yeah, they are. Those are still emerging technologies for the most part. Those are actually not examples of biomimicry because they're not using the function of nature to entice. Yeah, it's more that they are drawing from natural materials to comprise the building product. So we have now uncovered another misunderstanding of biomimicry just because you're using different biological materials in the substance. That doesn't mean that it's biomimicry. That's right. Yeah, I think there's a lot of confusion about it. So you're right. It's not just biomimicry and biophilia that frequently get confused with one another. I think it's also building product design that uses natural product. But I do think that they're all concepts that are drawing upon nature in different ways, recognizing that there are health benefits of human biological connectedness with nature and bringing that together to demonstrate that there is a wide range of diversity of inspiration that we can derive from nature. This series has to do with housing. Can you see biomimetic techniques in design and construction that could or should be incorporated into housing? The short answer is that biomimicry can be used on any project for any issue or problem. Since it is the deliberate emulation of natural forms, patterns, and processes to solve technological challenges, we can leverage nearly 4 billion years of nature's evolutional problem solving to create high performance and sustainable design and technologies. I I don't know that there are specific applications to affordable housing, but just knowing that nature can provide us with a source for ideas on how to do things more efficiently, more elegantly, hopefully that also translates to it being more affordable as well. If we're relying on nature more, it hopefully means that we're relying on systems less. I guess if I'm thinking back to the Dallas Zoo, those solutions we found could definitely be applied to other projects. In fact, we have applied them to other projects. We do a lot of work in hot climates that could benefit from the passive solutions that create shaded, passively cooled outdoor spaces and connecting people to the outdoors is central to our work. So we're always looking for ways to make that outdoor experience comfortable year round. And using low embodied carbon and local materials is also central to our work. Evaporative cooling works best when there's not a lot of humidity. So that specific solution wouldn't work as well in a hot, humid climate, but drier climates would be conducive to it. But all of that's to say that one question that we had talked about previously was that when would the issue of using biomimicry come up in the projects that we work on? Would it be the result of a search for solutions to specific problems? What issues are the right fit for it. Again, I I think I said this earlier, but it it bears repeating that biomimicry can be used on any project for any issue or problem. And nature provides us with an untapped source of solutions to a wide variety of issues. So every project is going to have its own unique and challenges. And I think any issue could utilize a biomimicry exploration to identify any solutions nature could offer. Um, Our firm, And most of the architectural profession is still new to applying this process of problem solving in our projects. Lake Flato has always had a deep appreciation for nature that has clearly been demonstrated in our work and our process. So we've always used biomimicry in an intuitive way. But in the last decade or so, we've started to apply a more rigorous process and we're still refining the most efficient and effective way to do that. And I think that the last thing that I'd like to share is that this exploration 
when we did it on the Dallas Zoo, we actually hired a specific team member to lead us through a biomimicry exploration. We wouldn't necessarily perform that on every project that we're working on, but we learned so much from it that we've been able to apply core principles of it to other things. So I think democratizing this process and making it more accessible to designers is key. And one resource that I had shared with you, Julie, was Ask Nature, which is a data that people can go to to quite literally ask nature the answers to different questions that they're wondering about. So you can find examples like the termite mound, natural ventilation that we discussed. You could also find examples like the bowerbird and the kangaroo bird of cooling that we discussed. So I think tools like that, that make the resources more available to every designer are going to be critical in making this thinking more widespread, more accessible. Thank you, Heather Holdridge, for clarifying what biomimicry is and how it can be used to solve specific design issues now and in the future as more opportunities present themselves to investigate and utilize the elegant and efficient solutions that nature has developed over billions of years. From speaking of innovative approaches to design construction derived from nature, we're going to move to green building techniques in use for thousands of years adapted to the needs of the 21st century with architect Stephen Colley, one of the founders of the Earthen Construction Initiative. I've read two or three different uh, books that have stated that upwards of 60% or more of the population of the planet either works or lives in an earthen-based or partially earthen-based structural house or building. And that certainly is not the case in North America. People who are looking at this sort of thing have found earthen construction in all of the continents except for Antarctica. And as far as the time goes, for example, there have been over 2,000 years ago, they were using relatively modern techniques of doing rammed earth in China, but rammed earth did exist before then. And in archaeological sites all over the world, they're constantly finding residences and towns and cities and structures that were based on earth construction. And so it's very historic and it's been around for thousands of years. It seems new to us because we just haven't done it that much in, in this country. And you are the f- one of the founders of the Earthen Construction Initiative? That's correct, yes. And tell us what that is and, and what your goal for it. The goal is to make earthen construction uh, a viable alternative to conventional construction. And so we're promoting that as a possibility. I really want it to be a, a market-driven and personally driven choice for whether or not people want to build with construction materials that are conventional or earthen. And I think that by building some examples of earthen construction, and we're talking here about using an ancient technique and combining it with 21st century knowledge and mechanical systems and uh, appliances and things so that we're not Luddites. We're not just going back to fire stoves and something that's ancient. It's modern technology and modern living uh, with a better building envelope. Can you clarify for me, in the Southwest and Mexico, and there are adobe buildings. Mm-hmm. Are they That's not correct. earthen construction? 
they are earthen construction. In 1492, of course, when Columbus came over and the Moorish influence had been in charge of the Iberian Peninsula, Northern Africa, and uh, Palestine for over 500 years. And they were using earthen construction in uh, a lot of that region. And so when they came over to, to America, they brought that kind of thinking with them as far as how to build and what to build with using local materials, for example, dirt, <laughs> using the soil, and also fine-tuning it to the climate. And that's really the epitome of green building. Um, you can't get any greener than that. But that's what they were doing 150, 300 years ago to do things right and be uh, appropriate with the climate as well as the materials. As a matter of fact, Native Americans were using an earth construction that was more like rammed earth where they had like form boards and they poured the soil between the boards and they tamped it down. For example, Taos Pueblo, which you might be aware of, that has been continuously occupied for what they say 900 to 1,000 years. And to this day, there's no air conditioning in there. It's worked. So, so the oldest, arguably the oldest continuously occupied structure is an earthen structure in, in America. So how very interesting. So what is old is new again? We didn't quit building earthen construction because we ran out of earth. You're working on compressed earth blocks. Is that right? The one project that I've got on the boards right now is a compressed earth block house. And actually, the clients and I are investigating possibly making that a rammed earth structure instead of a compressed earth block structure. There's a lot of different reasons. But one of the reasons being is that the cost of plastering a house has gotten to be expensive where rammed earth, you could probably expose the earth to the elements and everything's fine. What that means, though, is that the rammed earth needs to have a certain percentage of Portland cement or lime in the mix to make it much more resistant to wind-driven rain, which is going to be the biggest thing that we need to look out for as far as longevity of the material. Let's think about the house and building an earthen structure. Would it have uh, heating and air conditioning and water pump? The amenities that we expect in a modern home. It would have all the amenities we would expect. Would they pass building codes? That's a good question. They could pass building codes. There are some aspects of the building code that allow earthen construction, but still, we found at ECI there were certain aspects of the building code that needed to be revised to make it easier to build with earthen construction. So in uh, 2018, ECI helped out the city by suggesting a number of revisions to the building code that the city council unanimously approved. So as of 2018, San Antonio has amendments to the code that make the earthen construction easier to get. You gave me the example of having an earthen construction being subject to inspection. And could you tell me what happened when it was? It was a, a series of apartments. This was uh, before the 2018 amendments. A uh, city inspector came out and he took a look at the walls and he said, what's this material? And the builder said, it's an unfired masonry. He was not lying. It was a masonry type material, clay essentially. And since it's unfired, it was not like fired brick or anything like that, but it was masonry. 
And so he says, has this been tested? And he mentioned the, the code number four, the fire test that's required of materials. And the builder said, no, that has not been tested. He says, well, I'm going to have to require that test being performed before we can let you proceed. And the owner of the development actually said, okay, let's do it. And so they built the wall and the wall is infill in an opening where the test has a fire on the inside of this box and the earthen wall is one of the walls of the box. And so they cranked the heat on the inside with gas flames. And so there was 1900 degrees on the inside of this box. And so it was like a super, super hot oven that the kind of temperatures that you would face if you had a structure on fire. And they were testing to see if there was any kind of failure. Outside the wall that was facing the inside of the laboratory, and this was a large wall, it was eight by 10 feet, the temperature on the outside of the wall remained room temperature during the two hour test. And so that was impressive enough. But part of the test also requires hitting the wall with a fire hose to represent what would happen in the real world if a structure was on fire and you were going to be putting it out with a fire hose and the water pressure against that wall to see if it would collapse. And the wall did not collapse. And so the earthen construction, in this case, it was compressed earth block wall, passed the fire test. Sounds like it would be a good thing to to have in the event of a fire. Yeah, if you've got a tendency for fire in your area, I, I don't think you can beat earthen construction. Let me understand, the blocks are so heavy. You're right. The standard blocks of compressed earth block wall and the standard blocks are 10 by 14 by roughly four inches thick are around 30 to 35 pounds each. And as you can imagine, even a one-story house is going to be considerably more heavy than a conventional construction, which is extremely light. I'm finishing up the drawings for a house in Lano, and the client wants a safe room. And the safe room is a place where he and his family can go in case of a direct uh, strike by a tornado. And there's a door that leads from the outside into the safe room. And the safe room is quite large, by the way. It's like a large bedroom. And uh, there's a door that goes from the safe room to the rest of the house. Both of those doors are specified using the specifications that were provided for developing a door that is uh, resistant to tornadoes. And there are things you can do to respond to any kind of tragedy or any kind of uh, problem like right. that. The ceiling of the safe room is going to be concrete. So there is embodied energy in the ceiling, and it's a five-inch thick ceiling that's reinforced, and that rests upon earthen walls, which make up the walls of the safe room. And what do you do for roofs of these houses? That particular house is going to have a standing seam metal roof over the entire house. And in case of a tornado strike, we would expect that the uh, roof would be ripped away as, as well as the roof rafters, which leaves the safe room intact. And the rest of the house, the exterior walls would be intact. The perimeter walls would be fine. Of course, uh, the rest of the house would be subject to the winds and the rain and storm of the event. And all of your things need to be replaced, but the walls will still be there. So it would just be a matter of putting a new roof on it and uh, just going from there. So I take it that there's quite a risk in Lano for tornadoes. The thing is, there's probably going to be more of a risk as time goes by due to climate change, where we are finding more more tornadoes annually than, than we've had in the past. And so we can expect to have droughts, floods, tornadoes, hurricanes, you name it. 
what other methods or materials that you incorporate in the, the buildings that you're working on would you like to see incorporated in new homes to make them more environmentally sustainable? In that case, I would concentrate on materials that were durable, uh, easy to clean, and did not. When we're talking about net zero, materials that have a small embodied energy, which means that it didn't take as much energy to produce, uh, manufacture, transport, and install than other materials. And in the realm of indoor air quality, I would not want to see incorporation of any materials that had that were made with toxic products or had toxic effects as far as outgassing of materials. I wouldn't want to have any materials that were that had bromated flame retardants, for example, like curtains or upholstery. Those are extremely dangerous to have in a house. And there's nothing in the United States that prohibits those kind of materials from being produced and sold and used by consumers. So there are many advantages for going forward and an alternative to look to. Right now, it's a niche, right? It is. And right now, people say, why is it more expensive since um, we're talking about materials that are, and I hear this term all the time, dirt cheap. The answer is that the home building industry are responding to code requirements, but under particular code requirements, they're building as least expensive a house as they could possibly get away with in order to be competitive with their with the other builders in the area. But a sticker price is not the full price of a house, as you can understand, uh, when you're talking about maintenance, replacement of materials, those sort of things, the longevity of a house, how much you needed to use air conditioning and heating to keep it comfortable. And so if you talk about total cost of a house, I personally am convinced that earthen construction is cheaper per year over a 20-year period than uh, conventional construction. Be because of the diminishment of heating and uh, yes. cooling and maintenance. Those three also in indoor air quality. If you keep careful watch on what you're putting in that house, people inside are going to be healthier. Yeah, it's just going to be no doubt about it. And there's not a good way to put a price tag on that. But how do you put a price tag on asthma or how often you stay home and take care of a kid who's sick? You can't quantify that. And you can't really say how many days are you sick if you're living in an earthen house versus a conventional house. The research on that is going to be very difficult, uh, if possible at all, you know, to, to see how much money you're saving with a toxic-free earthen house. Thank you, Stephen Colley, for speaking with me. Thank you for inviting me. I, I was, this was very enjoyable. I was glad to have the opportunity. Thank you so much. From old building techniques updated to the 21st century, let's turn to promising new technology that could facilitate meeting the need for adequate and affordable housing. We have the good fortune of speaking with Lewis McNeil, one of the lead architects on the Lake Plato team that designed House Zero. They worked with Jason Ballard, founder of Icon Construction Company, using the company's proprietary 3D technology to design and build the house. Our firm is all about that, that intertwining of beauty and performance and being respectful of resources and respectful of people and the needs that people have from thermal comfort, 
environmental comfort and and doing it in a way that doesn't break the bank but also that that need that humans have for this biophilic connection to the world around them it's something that i was always uh, attracted to the firm for and that's the that's what i've devoted my career to is finding that way to blend the performance and the beauty of it so along comes house zero jason started this initiative called icon with a few other folks and icon is out there to transform the home building and construction industry they're deeply concerned with the lack of housing and the lack of affordable housing in the world and how to meet that need and they've started tackling that through huge innovations in 3D printing construction. So that's that's their main thing at the moment. I've previously spoken with both Ted Flato and Evan Morris about the CAD design and all of the things that you can do in modeling in 3D. So now that this takes it a step into the 3D construction. So you, could you explain that to us? Sure. 3D printed construction is something that's pretty fascinating to a lot of people out there. And I'm very fascinated in it myself. If you've seen those 3D printed desktop printers that make little plastic shapes, it's basically blowing up the size of that printer to the scale of a construction site. And instead of printing with a little plastic bead, you're printing with some kind of construction medium. And in Icon and House Zero's case, it's a concrete substance that comes out of a nozzle. And you basically are constructing components of a building. People liken it like icing a cake. You're building layer by layer, squeezing a substance out of a nozzle and building incrementally layer by layer upward. And so there's some fascinating advantages to that, which we can get into later. But it's basically working with architects doing a design the way we might normally do it through typical BIM or CAD drafting, handing that design information over to the printing company that then translates the design into a code for a robot printer to to follow a tool path and then then hitting play and letting that robot start its process and go out on site and layer by layer build up the components of the building that sh- that you've designed in this environment the 3d printer is called a robot because it is yeah. a ro- robot it is a ro- yeah it's a robot and it's exciting to think about that and it's also there's a little bit of nervousness thinking about robots taking over the world. But one of the things that I love about what we were able to do with House Zero is we made full advantage of robots. But as we'll get into, there are some amazingly human ways that that human sensibilities can still come forth through the robots, given that they were built by humans and programmed and operated by humans. It's not a fully AI, fully automated process by any means, but it's a very exciting thing that massively was has proved to save some time and effort on a job site. Would you describe it? This printer was modeled in a giant gantry crane situation. So there's two parallel tracks on the ground that straddle the full width of the construction footprint. And then a big U-shaped crane that rolls on the tracks and a nozzle that zips back and forth like the claw, the amusement park claw thing that reaches down and grabs your, or doesn't grab your stuffed animal. And so that (laughs) thing zips back and forth all the way across the site over and over. It's like thinking about traditional masonry, brick construction. A brick layer might lay the entire first course of a brick of brick over the entire footprint of a building. 
and then they go to level two or course number two. So that's what this gantry printer is doing. It's zipping row by row back and forth, building up the entirety of the house. And in, in house zero's case, it was actually two buildings, an outbuilding ADU and a main house that were disconnected from each other that all got printed up at the same exact time. Do you use multiple printers on the site? We did not. We used one printer. Wow. I take it this was the first 3D printed house that you worked on? Yes. You worked on it with a team. What were the other specialties or components of that team? Yeah, from Lake Flato's standpoint, it was a very kind of ordinary architectural design process where we had our usual amount of team members. And Ashley here, and I have to mention, was the amazing kind of co-leader of this design effort with me. And then we had some great folks under us making sure everything was fully detailed to perfection. So from the architect's side of things, currently, it was still the same mindset as running a normal project with a normal technology. The difference came with our client, Icon, who was unique. They're both the developer of the construction technology and the client of the house. They were asking us to do this project as a proof of concept and a showpiece for their own technology. And it was also technology they were inventing and innovating as we were designing the house. So there was an interesting and fun feedback loop of our architectural design team coordinating very closely with their research and development team, their robot scientists and software programmers. So that was the unique piece to this design. And there was a huge amount of education happening where we as designers needed to learn all of the parameters and limits and constraints of what their technology could do in order for us to design a meaningful house that actually made sense to be printed and actually worked with the idea of layer by layer printing up in an additive way. So Jason Ballard in his South by Southwest talk um, said that part of this net zero house construction was reinventing architecture. How was architecture reinvented in this case? Yeah, we, it's, it was a real fun kind of challenge he gave to us. On this house, he said he needed a house that showcased the 3D printed possibilities. And it also needed to look just exceptionally wonderful where any person out there could look at the house and think, wow, that looks like a really friendly and warm and compelling house that I want to live in. And where it almost doesn't matter if it's printed or not. We needed to make sure this house could sell the technology as a widely adopted and friendly way to build a house. So that was the starting point, was design a beautiful house, showcase the technology, and also make sure it was extremely sustainable and energy efficient. How was this reinventing architecture? Yeah, so in the way that we had to invent an entirely new suite of details, basically for how windows attach to walls, how a how a wall system can come out of a nozzle in a liquid form. <laughs> Those were the parts that got us really excited. And we were thinking in some ways it was reinventing and doing a lot of new stuff from Lake Flato's standpoint, but in another way, it was extremely in line with how we always think about the houses and the buildings we design, which is think about the material they're giving you to work with and think about every possible 
advantage and use of that material and way to optimize it. And we do that all the time in every house, whether it's a primitive ancient technology like monolithic masonry, building with big limestone blocks, or building with wood stud construction or steel construction. We're always out there in the trenches talking with the fabricators and the subcontractors to understand like what's, how would you build this detail out of a big limestone block in a way that makes sense to you, stonemason. So we got to just put, take that same mindset and apply it to robot scientists, material scientists and icons team out there and treat the material of 3D printed concrete as, as just another step in the long lineage of material developments over time. And what that meant to us in terms of new architecture was is almost like returning to some eternal ancient things. We got to think about curves and playing with shapes that the printed process inherently does really well. A lot of our houses are built with wood studs or brick or masonry or other things that inherently typically end up giving you a lot of right angles and boxes. And there's nothing wrong with boxes and they're beautiful and they can work really well too. But, and we take curving things very seriously. We won't do it <laughs> almost ever unless we can like really find a justification and a meaning behind a curve. So what 3D printing opens up for architects like us is, is the chance to experiment with some old shapes and forms like curves and rounded things that we wouldn't normally have been doing in a traditional construction mindset. And so a curve has a beautiful structural property to it, which is that a curving wall is a lot more self-stable and is not going to topple over as well as a flat, simple wall. And 3D printing opens up this beautiful opportunity to think about shaping spaces and rooms and walls using curvature to get more efficiency in how you structure walls. A curve has magical, beautiful structural properties. And we've always known that now we get to play with it to a more full way in a house like House Zero that's 3D printed. So a 3D printing robot doesn't care at all if it's printing a right angle or a swoopy angle. It's just as easy to that printer. <laughs> so you can then think, okay, does it make sense to print right angles or does it make sense to print other things? And in House Zero, we, we found some very efficient ways to print other things, some curvy shapes and ripply shapes. And it's, it had some huge advantage. How does 3D printing make constructing a home or any building faster than conventional construction? Basically, 3D printing holds huge potential for rapid construction of multiple housing units much faster than we've ever been able to do before. And the way that works is, and you can see it in House Zero, is we printed the wall assembly. What that means is in one fell swoop with one machine and one minimal crew out on site, over the course of 10 days, we are covering the need for the wood stud framing system, which no longer exists, the sheathing on the studs, the kind of waterproofing moisture, the air gap beyond the sheathing, and the final exterior cladding. And then on the inside, we're doing away with the sheetrock layer and the final finished surface. All of that in house zero happened over the course of a 10 day print effort from a single material uh, it came out of a nozzle that was carefully kind of spaced apart and layered in different ways to get the right air gaps and all of that. 
And so all of that was one single crew consistently on site. There was not a series of subsequent framing crews, sheathing, cladding crews, drywall crews coming over a series of months, one step after the other. So it was that consolidation of all those trades and all those different materials into a single material and a single process, which holds the huge amount of promise for what we were able to do. So House Zero could be duplicated numerous times over in the future. Now that we've done it once, there'd be a way to optimize and rapidly produce something very equivalent to it as more and more prefabbed parts are incorporated into it. What is done with a printer and what what other techniques do you have to use to go along with a printer? Yeah, this new architecture idea of inventing something like a new way of building is about separating the parts of a house in different new ways. So in House Zero's case, in 3D printing construction in general, you're going to be thinking very differently about the construction of the wall system compared to the construction of the roof system. Um, in traditional stud-built, wood stud construction, walls and roofs are all going to be built out of two-by-wood pieces, generally. With 3D printing and this new language of construction, it's getting back to, again, a more ancient way of thinking about the heavy, solid, earthy materials building up down low, rooted into the ground, and then lighter stuff like wood pieces brought in and put on top. So in House Zero, we're 3D printing the walls, and then on top there's wooden, delicate, and articulated roof structure that sits on top. We're always looking for ways to optimize for efficiency and construction. And we think that 3D printing is an amazing tool, but it's just one of many tools that need to be brought together onto a construction site to optimize for everything. We're not at all saying there's no more place for wood construction or anything, but there's currently definitely a place. No one has yet successfully 3D printed a full roof over a 3D printed house. That'll probably come in some way at some point. But for now, we've got a very efficient way to print walls and then there's still very efficient ways to cap a house off with roofs made of prefabbed elements. House Zero, it was a kind of custom-built on-site project on top of the walls, given the supply chain issues of COVID when it was built and given the rapid speed we needed to get this thing pulled out of the ground. But House Zero is meant to be replicable and meant to be thought of as a series of prepackaged elements that you could add to a 3D printed assembly. So the roof could just as easily have been prefabbed in a factory, craned into place in, in panels. And then you've got an even much more super fast way to, to construct. Likewise with the windows or any interior wood walls, it's all meant to be thought of as a series of very efficient components that can snap together. And that's where we'll get to, I'm certain, in the coming years with different 3D printed efforts. There's this kind of focus on how to design for efficiency and build for efficiency in every possible part of the house. When people are looking at affordable housing, what's being prototyped now are 400 square feet and 500 square feet houses. At what kind of speed and what kind of volume could that be done even currently? So for frame of reference, House Zero's walls were printed over the course of about 10 days. We've seen that with the various companies that are working on 3D printing, they're using 
different kinds of materials. Icons has a proprietary mix. I don't know what it is and I can't even talk to it, but it's concrete. And so for house zero, we were happy to work with concrete and we work with concrete in other houses as well because of its strength and its permanence. We're not building what the insurance people would consider a 30 year house, which is what the lifespan of a typical wood stud tract house might be. We're building a hundred year quality houses when we build out of concrete. That right there is helps to justify the carbon usage of concrete up front is that you're not losing that house potentially in 30 years and building another one and then another one over the course of 100 years. Doing that kind of disposable architecture is more carbon intensive than one concrete house that lasts you a while. So it's about celebrating the material for what it can do, but then still we need to hold that material up to a higher standard and make it perform even better over time and find a way to, to print or to build for permanency and resilience in a way that still lowers that carbon footprint up front. One of the things that Lake Flato is known for is the sustainability and resiliency. Can this system work in every climate? Uh, as far as we can tell, pretty much, yeah. House Zero is very climatically specific to South Texas, given the deep roof overhangs for shading and sideways blowing rain that we all get here, but it's a heavily, thickly insulated house, which a lot of people don't quite realize. The thing that struck me the most about working on house zero was an integral team member was this robot. And this robot proved to be not a terrifying villain. This robot was just the full embodiment of many other human beings, hands and minds that had come together and working well with this robot as a team member <laughs> allowed for this totally new and beautiful way to build that still has this kind of human acceptable irregularity to it. And you can see it most clearly in the striations and pattern of those walls where you look closely and they wobble and wiggle a little bit based on how gravity is affecting the print when it goes around a curve. And it's just a beautiful system that shows the future is really bright because we've got a lot of great human brains and minds and hearts working hard. And those brains and hearts are working towards some interesting technology. And there is a way for those brains and hearts to come through in that technology. That may not always be the case for every bit of technology, but I think this is a great example of how, how it's done. So I'm very optimistic for building and constructing in the future of getting to get build that world that we want to see that's beautiful and graceful and that doesn't cost an arm and a leg to build. So that's what fuels me and keeps me going. Thank you, Lewis McNeil, and thanks also to Stephen Colley and Heather Holdridge for speaking with us today. Tell us what you think about the issue we discussed. You can find out more information about our guests and links to the entities we mentioned in the show notes on the Living Well Into the Future tab on the Berkshire Ollie website, berkshireollie.org. That's berkshireolli.org. You'll find this and future episodes of Living Well into the Future on WTBRFM.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can even ask your smart device to play Living Well into the Future podcast. You can reach us at lwitf22 at gmail.com. That's L-W-I-T-F 22 
at gmail.com. Our thanks from me, Julie B. Adler, to Berkshire Ali and its Changing Aging Special Interest Group, and WTBR-FM 89.7 FM Pittsfield for their support, and to our team members. Our music is by Michael Koppenheffer. Our graphics are by Gene Rosso. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and not of WTBR Berkshire Ali or the LWITF production team. 